pray with me this morning, church, one more time. Our God and Father, this morning we endeavor into a challenging topic. And Lord, my heart today is just heavy. Lord, knowing the struggle of some, even in this congregation, or, or our loved ones who really wrestle with being comfortable in their own skin. Lord, living in a world where there's tremendous amount of pressures in multiple different directions. And Lord, I'm just, Lord, we really want to capture this morning your heart for people, your compassion in coming and dying for us, that as a church, we would embody that as we talk about what it means to be human, what it means to be biologically male and female, and what it means to struggle and have incongruence in that. Or just feel the weight this morning and really want to do this well. And so, Lord, in order to do that, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just do what you would do. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you uh, once again. My name is Gary. I'm the lead pastor here at GBC and have the privilege of taking us into the fourth week of this series entitled Good Sex. It was really good to hear uh, Zach's messages over the last couple weeks uh, to sit under his teaching. And this series was really his his passion, his desire that we would uh, hit these topics. And so as we enter the fourth sermon in this series, I want you to know, I want to give you a little bit more of a, a reveal. Maybe it's a reminder, or maybe it's kind of brand new to you. Uh, what we're really doing over these five weeks is we're actually kind of preaching one sermon and we're illustrating it five different ways through five categories of human sexuality, if you will. And so this five-part message, if you will, is about uh, understanding worldview contrasting how the world sees us as human beings on the one hand with how the Bible sees us as human beings on the other. And this morning we're going to do that once again through the lens of transgenderism. Now our aim over these five weeks as we continue to hit these topics is to do three things. That by the time we get through all three weeks that we would have number one uh, be equipped with a biblical understanding of these topics. It's our tagline. A biblical look at delight desire, and design, but that we would also uh, be able to understand and somewhat speak to and articulate why our friends and those that we love or work with uh, look at these issues differently, why they fundamentally, in terms of their framework of how they understand what it means to be human and human sexuality, why they think, believe differently and passionately the way that they do. And then thirdly, that in conversations with those that are in our lives that we love, that we would apply this, this test that C.S. Lewis gives us that we talked about in week one. And that is simply when we have two contrasting worldviews, we measure them by asking which one makes better sense of the world in which we live, our day to day. And so that's what we're gonna attempt to do this morning is to apply that test to the, the biblical worldview and the cultural worldview. And I wanna make one really strong pastor point this morning particularly if you struggle, I'll use that term, kind of in your own skin with gender and sex and so on and so forth. We're going to talk a lot about concepts, uh, definitions, ideas, statistics, uh, sociology, all of these things. And I want us to know as a congregation and you to hear if you're a struggler in this area is we need to recognize we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about human beings. And, and so let's not get lost in concepts and become... Um, you know, uncaring in that. So in his book, Embodied, Preston Sprinkle kind of captures the idea of this when he says this. He says, Christians should want trans people to flood our churches. 
This will create loads of beautifully complex pastoral opportunities. I don't think the church should be limited to squeaky clean Christians who think they have all their stuff together or who keep their porn, their greed, their pride, and their lack of concern for the poor hidden behind dusty hymnals. We should want churches filled with those who know their brokenness, don't hide their pain, and who ask very hard questions. I wonder if, it's, if this is your first day at church here this morning. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's funny, a, a gentleman came walking in uh, to the first time this morning, early before the first service, and I said, hey, let me give you a little bit of a heads up. <laughs> what you're, um, we're in deep waters. Preston Sprinkle wrote this uh, really, really thoughtful and biblically faithful book called Embodied. In fact, that'll be our companion resource for this morning. So as we've been doing each week, I'm going to do it in a little bit different manner uh, this morning. We want to continue to encourage our people uh, to be equipped again and to read good books. So I'm going to give this one away free of charge. We have others at the Welcome Center. First come, first serve. The only deal is you have to, right here, Eddie, you have to uh, agree to read it. So if you could kind of get that to him. Awesome. There's more copies at the Welcome Center. We have a resource list as well. Uh, encourage you, let's be leaders or readers, right? If we're going to be readers, uh, leaders in our culture, let's, let's be about that. So let me map where we're going this morning, what we hope to do in the next 30 plus minutes or so. Number one, we're, let, let's define the terminology. What's the vocabulary around this idea of transgenderism? Let's set a baseline, make sure we all know what we're talking about. Uh, and then let's look at the secular worldview where it concerns sex and gender. And I'll tell you that we're going to uh, sort of hang that out there, show what it is, and I'm going to make the case that it breaks down in the real world that there are problems with uh, the world's view of sex and gender. Number, and then thirdly, we're going to look at the Bible's view of sex and gender. And we'll make the case, you are in church this morning, uh, that the biblical worldview makes better sense in the world that we live in. And then finally, this morning, it's a communion Sunday. We'll be taking the body and blood symbolically of the Lord Jesus this morning. And so we're going to land there. We're going to point to Jesus as the one who gives us hope in our struggles. If... if struggling in your own skin, so to speak, defines you, but also compassion, that as Christians, as a church, that we would respond with compassion towards those who have these challenges or struggles. So let's begin with some definitions. We'll start nice and easy. Biological sex. This is the, the term that everybody across social science and, and every field pretty much agrees on. And biological sex is based on observable, scientifically observable things, right? The presence or absence of a Y chromosome, internal reproductive organs, external sexual anatomy, and endocrine systems. Those four things identify us as, as biologically male or female, and those are agreed upon. In fact, Preston Sprinkle in his book says it this way. He says, sexual dimorphism among humans is an established, observable, objective, scientific, the earth is round and not flat sort of fact. There is no other widely accepted biological classification for the sexes. So that's our baseline. That's something we all come to understand. Now you might be, uh, perhaps there are one or two of you who are thinking, well, wait a minute. What about those who are intersex biologically? We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Uh, number two is gender. Gender, uh, up until the 1950s or so, maybe early 1960s, was synonymous, even in the world's understanding, with biological sex. They were used interchangeably as terms. Today, again, in the culture, in the world in which we live, gender can be broken down into two sub-definitions. The first being gender identity, which is simply one's internal sense of self as male, female, both, or neither. 
That's how the world would define gender identity. Gender role describes the social and cultural nature of male and female. That is masculinity and femininity. What is that? That's gender role. Now, if you were here last week and heard Zach's message where he talked about the authority of what determines myself, it's actually repeated here in this language. Gender identity is who I say that I am. Gender role is who everyone else says that I am. And we'll, of course, get to this morning, who does God say that I am and how does he reveal that? That's the third definition, or the second definition. Gender, uh, gender dysphoria is our third. Gender dysphoria is a psychological term for the distress that some people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't line up with their biological sex. Now, this could be just a general distress or actually a medically diagnosable psychiatric condition. And I, I want to pause here and say that for those that wrestle with gender dysphoria, uh, those feelings are real. Regardless of, of uh, where we go this morning, we need to recognize that, that uh, those feelings for them are particularly real. And we'll draw some parallels to the rest of us as well. Final definition, transgender or transgenderism. Mark Yarhouse of Regent University defines transgenderism in this way. An umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express their gender identities. And so this becomes a, uh, a much more complex definition we'll kind of get into later. But it's, it's the way that, that that sense of conflict is expressed or presented. So admittedly, uh, please understand that in 30 or 40 minutes, uh, we're not going to be able to comprehensively give you something. You're going to have to do more work and research on your own if you feel compelled to learn more about this area. Our goal, again, is to equip us with what are the two worldviews generally, why do we believe a biblical worldview holds up better, and then have us as a church be able to talk intelligently and biblically about these topics to those that we love. So regarding the complexity of transgenderism, again, Mark Yarhouse, he kind of captures it in this short little quote. He says this, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. That's the essence of uh, the tension there. And I can tell you, having had the opportunity to talk to a couple of trans folks, that that is definitely the case. So with those uh, definitions kind of in hand, let's look at the larger worldview that undergirds these definitions. This is how the world sees personhood and gender and so on and so forth, not how the Bible sees. We'll get to that. So it goes back to our first week where we talked about two-story dualism that comes from Francis Schaeffer and others. And it's this idea that you'll see in this diagram here that our personhood is on one story and our physical body is on the other story. What do we mean by that? Personhood, meaning our personality, our psyche, what we think about ourselves, our self-image, all of those things is in that upper story and is actually the authoritative part of us to determine who we are. The lower story is, is this stuff, the physical plant, if you will, our flesh and blood. And it's separate according to the world's view and it doesn't dictate my personhood my, uh, my personhood does. So in the transgender uh, discussion, this is what it looks like. Gender identity, who I say that I am, is in that upper story. It's authoritative to determine my identity. Biological sex, lower story. This is why, as a matter of fact, we can have an, an infinite number of gender identities, right? Because it's in that upper story. It's whoever I say that I am. Well, 
This is playing out in the larger culture. I want to show you an illustration that's becoming very popular in the field of education and uh, medicine. Have any of you seen this diagram before? Are you familiar with it? Yeah, more hands than the, than the first service. This is called the gender-bred person. And the gender-bred person is an illustrative way to, uh, to convey, particularly to children and young people, the two-story view. It's, it's a compartmentalization of our physical selves from our internal selves. And it says that, that uh, what's in here and here is authoritative over my biology. This is a diagram and an illustration. It's a free resource on the web that is being used to push this view that we should be familiar with. It's in pediatrics, it's in education, it's, in, it's all over the place. That's essentially the two-story view. The implications of this view is that our bodies, and you can go back to the previous uh, diagram if you don't mind, uh, our bodies are not the, uh, the site of our authentic self, to use the language that we used last week. Matter doesn't matter, this view would hold. It accepts this, this sort of dualistic view. The body is not seen as having any intrinsic purpose, or the Greek word we've been using is telos, which means ultimate meaning or purpose. The internal sense of self does. And so our physical traits, our bodies, our biological sex provide no signposts for how we're supposed to live uh, as males, females, or even in terms of our sexuality. I want to spend a little bit of time this morning uh, hopefully illustrating to you why and how this breaks down. This idea that our self and our physical body, internal sense of self and physical body are separate and that our biological self has no authority to determine who we are when it comes to the area of transgenderism. And I want to do that with two, hopefully two ways. One, through cause. What are the causes of, of gender dysphoria in particular, but transgenderism uh, as a further conclusion? And then effect. What happens when someone who uh, struggles with, or with gender dysphoria kind of embraces transgenderism, particularly moves toward a transition in that regard? And how does this point to the fact that this worldview doesn't actually work? Well, we're going to get into some numbers this morning, but I want to admit we're going to kind of focus on young people. And from pediatrics all the way through adolescent development, a vast majority of trans people either are or began their trans journey in their childhood or adolescence. There are two phenomenon in gender dysphoria, early onset gender dysphoria and rapid onset gender dysphoria. Both of them together uh, account for a vast majority of transgendered persons. So first statistic, 83% of those who have embraced or who have struggled with gender dysphoria will move out of that dysphoric condition or struggle by the conclusion of puberty. 83%. Now, if you remember growing up, no matter how old you are, if you, well, if you're really old, you might have trouble remembering back. But if you can remember back, and you think to childhood and certainly to adolescence, your sense of self was in flux, right? All of us would try on, I remember in youth culture learning, uh, when I was a youth pastor, learning about uh, how kids would try on different selves. And it was a little more pronounced uh, it, when I was in youth ministry, but that's something that's since, since human beings have existed, right? We wrestle with who we are. When it comes to a struggle with our biological sex being incongruent with our sense of self, 83% of young people who struggle this will outgrow it. And so that needs to be kind of held in view first. Second statistic, 
uh, comes from a study by Lisa Lippman of Brown University who did a, a wide study on gender dysphoric kids. And she found this, and this is fascinating. She found that 63% of young people who had a, a dysphoric condition had one or more either psychiatric disorder or neurodevelopment disability preceding the onset of gender dysphoria. In other words, and you can throw these statistics up. We won't look at all of them. But they had one or more of this list of, of conditions prior to going to a, a physician or a counselor for gender dysphoria. Things like major trauma, self-injury, ADHD, OCD, and a fascinating one is autism. Another statistic is that 20, over 25% of transgender teenagers who are seeking gender reassignment surgery, over 25% of them are, are diagnosed with autism on the spectrum. These statistics not only should not be ignored, they should be highlighted and should be looked at first before medical uh, pediatric diagnoses are given. But that's not what happens in the real world. One of the corollaries is there are now tremendous insights from the areas of eating disorders and anorexia and body image issues relative to peer contagion, if you're old here, peer pressure, through social media, and what Zach talked about in his conversation about pornography, neuroplasticity. That is, that which I reinforce and do over and over and over and over in my life becomes who I am because of the neuroplasticity of our brain chemistry and brain science. If I'm losing the stats, we'll bring them together. We'll, we'll bring it all together in a moment. Hang with me. So we have these multiple, in many cases, conditions in young people before they experience gender dysphoria. Then we have a culture in which they're growing up with tremendous peer pressure to be and to conform to that which is popularized in the culture. And here's the problem. Here's where the two-story view breaks down when it comes to causality. When it comes to cause, what is the cause of gender dysphoria? They're not even asking that question. In many cases, in most cases. They're not looking at all these other pre-existing either mental health or developmental questions and saying, how has that influenced this young person's battle with gender dysphoria? And they're certainly not considering, to a large degree, the fact that most kids will outgrow gender dysphoria just like most kids wanted to be, you know, Darth Vader when they were seven. And I say that in jest, but it's true. Kids have always questioned their identity in their adolescence. One pastor said it this way, why don't we let two-year-olds play with knives? Why don't we let 12-year-olds set public policy? I was listening to an interview with a, a trans man this week who has become an advocate against allowing young people to have any transgender uh, uh, transitions until they're 25 years old. And he said it this way, he said, young people are not able to see around the corner of their lives to know who they're gonna be in 25 years old. And it's in this great twist of irony, this trans person is one of the greatest and loudest advocates that kids should be allowed to develop without being pushed in these directions. It's fascinating. And so what happens in the culture from a cause point is these young people are pushed towards transition rather than looking at the ultimate, uh, the foundational concerns. There are three kinds of transition. Social transition, where, where kids dress, act, and appear as the opposite gender. Hormonal or um, uh, drug transition, where they're given puberty blockers and, and hormone-inducing drugs uh, at a very young age. Or certainly uh, the most extreme, I would argue barbaric, uh, is 
surgical transition. Now, let me speak as a, as a former youth pastor and student of youth culture. Here's the thing is this has all developed over the last 15, 20 years. Here's the thing that really baffles me that, that I really don't understand. When I was coming up in the youth ministry world, uh, the social, uh, social science and, and brain chemistry were all telling us, and we know it's true today, that a human being does not fully develop uh, mentally. Our, our brain chemistry doesn't fully develop, become resolved until we're roughly 25 years old. That's true for, for, on average, for boys and girls. And there's all kinds of other contributing factors to our childhood development, right? Since as early as kids have been kids, there's uh, such a phenomenon called age aspiration. You all went through it. What is age aspiration? It's the fact that a nine-year-old wants to be a 12-year-old and a 12-year-old wants to have their license and be a 16-year-old and a 16-year-old wants to be out of high school and 18 or 20 and on and on we go until you get to about 30, then everybody wants to be younger. But you put age aspiration, and then you put that together with the fact that our bodies actually mature physically uh, faster than they ever had, particularly girls, and there's all kinds of reasons, if foods we eat and all that stuff, and you put extended adolescence, so we mature faster physically, we develop uh, slower and, and reach permanency in our development mentally later, but we aspire to be able, you mix all that together, and yet, right now in this cultural moment, we say that a 14 or a 15 year old is, should be trusted and able to make a decision about permanently altering their physical anatomy based on what they feel going on up here. I cannot comprehend that. And let me say, if you were a parent this morning, be a parent. Tell your, let me ask you, would you allow your 12 year old to get a tattoo? Would you allow, thank you for that. He was quick on the trigger that, with that. <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I was a youth pastor, I, I would get a lot of these questions about three things. Tattoos, piercings, and hair color. Right? Can my kid dye his hair? And I, I would always answer this way. If it's permanent, say, not until you're 18. Right? If it's not permanent, then get it to heart. Why, is, it, is it rebelling against you, or is it just trying to figure out the self? And so I, there was this one woman, she came to me and her, her son wanted to dye his hair blue. And so we talked, to, he was my student actually, and so we talked a little about where he's at. And I said, here's what you do. Go to CVS with him, buy the 20 washes, come home, you dye his hair, laugh about it, have fun with it. And I said, I guarantee in a month he's going to be over it. Within two weeks, he was, he was washing it out and he was over it. A lot of this has to do with the heart. And parents has, have lost their ability and their voice to be parents. And some of that is driven by this narrative, this false narrative that says, if you don't allow your kid to trans when they're stomping their feet and crying, they're going to commit suicide. And that has been found to be patently false. And so let's talk about transition and suicide. Three kinds of transition, social, hormonal, and surgical. There, there are some short-term studies on the effects of um, transgender surgery after, but there's only one that I know of longitudinal. It's a 30-year study out of Sweden. And uh, you can find it online. It's, it's all over the place. But what it found in essence that about seven to 10 years, about a decade after having gender reassignment surgery, those subjects that were interviewed had significant increases in medical complications, mortality, psychiatric morbidity, depression, and suicidal ideation. Now, in fact, on average, a person who undergoes full hormone therapy and surgical transition uh, cuts their lifespan by about 12 years. Nobody's telling young people this, by the way. They, there's uh, rapid onset osteoporosis that sets in, particularly in men. 
because we're, there are cardiac issues. On and on we could go. But the increase in suicidality occurs seven to 10 years after the surgery, far above and beyond what existed before the surgery. Now to be clear, the science shows that about 5% of those that go through this procedure end up happy and, and well-adjusted, at least within this one study. But the overwhelming majority, the data would show, folks, it ain't working. And why is that? Well, it's because our body and our sense of personhood actually aren't separate. And just altering our body doesn't answer the heart issues. So one of the things that's happening is there's a growing, and I will tell, tell you they, were, they are angry and vocal, a growing number of detransitioners in their 20s and early 30s. And you know who they're angry at is their pediatricians and their parents and their educators. And they're extremely vocal. There's, uh, there are some folks in this community that, and, and uh, organizations like the Detransitioning Advocacy Network and Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, which published an 18-month study, or, or study 18 months ago, providing hard data on this. Now, that is a giant truckload of information that we've just dumped on ourselves this morning. Here's the good news. Purity-blocking drugs and cross-sex hormone therapy is increasingly being questioned in medical and pediatric circles because of some of these voices. And maybe you say, well, I'm not a young person and I struggle in this area. What about me? I hope that we'll get to that this morning. Hang with me in that. I want to answer one other question that I hinted at in the beginning, and it's the question of intersex. Perhaps you say this morning, well, what about intersex? There's this argument in the transgender movement that says, because intersex people exist, therefore the, the gender binary of male and female breaks down. It's, it's, it's sort of, um, it blows it up. But the reality is we have to look at what intersex actually is and who's a part of it. Intersex persons represent 1% of the population. And let's not dismiss, again, people over concepts, right? Those are real people. However, 1% of the population that are intersex, intersex describes 16 different medical conditions of atypical features in sexual anatomy or a chromosomal issue. And a vast majority of those who are intersex persons don't actually know that they have an intersex condition because they're not particularly sexually ambiguous. In fact, it, when they find out as if they have to do a parental DNA test or, or there are other things later in life, they don't even know they have it because they are still male or female. However, 1% of 1% are actually, uh, in terms of their anatomy, ambiguous. Now, there's two things that we can say out of that, probably more. Number one, the church ought to have a particularly soft heart for that 1%, that 1% who is a human being who has deep need and a deep sense of confusion over who they are. However, 1% of 1% of the population absolutely does not redirect or impact at all the understanding that we're born biologically male or female. And then in the biblical view that we're going to look at next, our biology should inform our identity in an authoritative way. A couple of conclusions, and then we'll, let's look at the biblical view. Based on causality... What causes gender dysphoria based on the effects of transition and the studies that are just now coming out seven to 10 years after people transition? The culture should be asking a ton of questions when someone expresses gender dysphoria. 
about mental health conditions, social influences, and so on and so forth. The church should recognize that persons who struggle with gender dysphoria or identify as trans are highly likely to be deeply needy people who need the church, who need love, who ultimately need the love of Jesus. And God has positioned the church in a wonderful place to be able to minister to these folks. Maybe that describes you this morning. I pray that this community can be a loving place for you. So Preston Sprinkle challenges us with this notion. He says, for us, if a man who's single, castrated, or has atypical features in his sexual anatomy shows up at Groton Bible Chapel and is not accepted, then our church has some serious issues it needs to sort out with Jesus. Now I get that it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. We don't necessarily know how to talk to someone who's trans. But that in and of itself is not enough. And Sprinkle goes on, he says this, yet, according, yet accepting people doesn't mean believing such people have a flawless view of God, the world, humanity, or themselves. Christian acceptance is always acceptance into a flawed community seeking holiness and repentance. Christian discipleship means moving toward and embracing our embodied identities. That's the two-story view. That's where it breaks down, cause and effect. Let's look at the biblical worldview. Biblical worldview uh, presents a positive view of the body. It provides uh, teleology, that is purpose and meaning in our physicality and in ourselves. I love how Nancy Piercy says this in her book, Love Thy Body. She says, the body person is an integrated psychosexual unity. Matter does matter. So rather than being personhood and body being separate over each other, this is a better representation of the, of the biblical worldview. In reality, you probably could take that center, the center circle line out even. But that body and soul are an integrated whole. And so we want to look at what the scripture says briefly on this topic this morning. I'm going to begin with this idea that God has displayed creational intent in biology. God has created, let me add a word here. God has created, uh, has displayed creational artistic intent in our biology. A couple weeks ago, we read Genesis chapter one. I want to read you in Genesis two, it's, it's a more detailed description of the act of creation. And I want to read it. I want you to listen for the language of the divine artist, of God's craftsmanship as he makes man and woman. It says this, then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. A little later in the chapter, it goes on. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. There's beauty, there's art as God brings together in our sexed bodies a man and a woman and carefully creates us with great dignity that expresses uh, this sacred act of artistic creation, artistic design, intentional design. Jesus echoes this in Matthew 19. When asked about divorce, he says, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he goes on and he quotes Genesis 2 about one flesh and the nature of marriage. Interestingly, Jesus is being asked about marriage and divorce here. There's really no categorical reason he needed to reference this, the specificity of us being created male and female. But Jesus is affirming the sacredness of 
of our unique creation as male and female and God's artistry in that. There's creational intent. And so Paul says in Romans 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. Understand, Paul isn't say, saying, go to the temple and put your body in the altar or light yourself on fire or cut yourself. No, he's saying, give your whole self to God. He uses you and your bodies interchangeably here because they're an integrated whole. Personhood is a body. We are not souls with bodies, but embodied souls. Second point, the biblical worldview is we are to practice, therefore, intentional presentation consistent with our biological sex. What do we mean by that? Well, Deuteronomy 22 makes it really clear. A woman is not to wear male clothing and a man is not to put on a woman's garment for everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord your God. Now, Paul actually reinforces this in the New Testament a little bit more broadly. In 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about uh, hair length and head coverings and all these cultural elements of being men and women. And in essence, what he's saying is within the culture in which you live, if you're, if you're biologically male, present yourself as male. If you're biologically female, present yourself as female. And that invites all kinds of questions because cultures change. There's, cultures are different and then individual cultures over time are also different. Think about our own culture. You know that over 100 years ago that blue was a girl's color, pink was a boy's color. Or if you're a woman this morning, 150 years ago, if you'd come to church dressed in blue jeans, that would have been considered presenting as a male. And so Deuteronomy and, and ultimately the New Testament where Paul elaborates on this idea is that we present as male or female within the cultural context in which we live. Well, that brings us to, uh, again, that invites a ton of questions, but it brings us to our third point for the church. And I mean the church globally as well as this church in particular. We should be countercultural in our gender roles. And I think this is the big place where the church needs to repent a little bit. God has given us, there's creational intent in our, biolog our, our biology, our biological sex. We are called, according to the scripture, let me say lovingly to those of you who struggle with gender dysphoria, to present as male or female based on our biological sex. However, the issue of how cultures view masculinity and femininity brings a real need for repentance even in the church. I want to give you an illustration of this from 2 Samuel. Number one, we need to recover a biblical theology of friendship. Listen to David's description of his friendship with Jonathan after Jonathan had died. He says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of women. We have so lost the category of same-sex friendship that when modern scholars read this verse and read about Jonathan and David's friendship, they presume a homosexual relationship, which is not accurate. It's that we've lost the essence of what it means to be in male friendship. More importantly, that our stereotypes for what it means to be masculine and feminine, even in the church, are way oversimplified and, and not correct. And what they do is they marginalize people who don't fit those norms. 
Now, the Bible blows those stereotypes apart. Listen to just a quick uh, rapid-fire medley of Scripture. In the Bible, I'll talk about men first. A man is characterized by being tender in Ephesians 4, emotional in the Psalms, relational in uh, 1 Samuel 18. Men are called to love and to weep in Romans 12, to raise and to teach and nurture children and be sensitive in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 6, to be kind in Proverbs 11 and to be active peacemakers in Matthew chapter 5, and we could go on. In regards to women, the Proverbs 31 woman blows apart all the gender stereotypes, not only the Bible times, but even of today. She's industrious. She's a business owner. She's respected in the community. This summer, we heard from one of our elders, Larry Olson, about Lydia, who's a businesswoman and a, and a leader. And let's not forget the three women who stood at the foot of the cross boldly as Jesus died when all the men had scattered and hid from fear. Women who also supported Jesus' ministry financially and otherwise. Being a man is not about being masculine according to our definitions. It's about being holy. If you're a woman who is not typically feminine in the stereotypical ways, it does not mean that you are not still a woman. And so these men that are outside of these stereotypes are women. If they feel uncomfortable, our men's retreat or our women's retreat, that's on us, not on them. So let me show you where this hits close to home. About our ministry here at the chapel, our website, one of the web pages that I oversee that I helped design. Look at this image on our men's ministry web page. And if we had more time, it'd be super fun to do sort of a, a brainstorming word exercise on what kinds of things come to mind when you look at that image. But I guarantee I would hear things like flannel, trucks, meat, firearms, hunting. And, and not that those things are, are bad in of themselves, or not masculine, they are. But our definitions of masculine or feminine are way too narrow. And so what happens when a man who loves classical music, who writes poetry and loves gaming, looks at our website or hears the advertisement for our men's retreat or switch that around, talking about women's retreat. The reality is that the Bible presents a much wider view of what being masculine and feminine is. David is the perfect archetype in the Old Testament. David's the guy who kills Goliath, takes a sword, cuts his head off, and that's just a couple of days from when he was sitting on a hillside with a harp writing the most beautiful poetry that becomes part of our Bible. That's biblical masculinity. I love how Preston Sprinkle says this. He says, the Bible is profoundly liberating when it comes to how males and females are expected to act. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, for instance, doesn't have male and female fruit. We're called to be virtuous. Or as my good friend Rob O'Neill said in his message on this topic, the Bible didn't give us Barbie and G.I. Joe. The world did. We need to recover biblical ideas of masculinity, femininity, and friendship. Well, we've considered a lot this morning. We could keep going, but if we've, as we look at, at social science and philosophy, as we look at the scripture, as we look at all of this data and bring this to a conclusion, the thing that we're suggesting is that our biological sex is what should determine who we are as male and female. In wrapping up his book and bringing it to conclusion, Preston Sprinkle said this. He said, I don't think gender should override sex where there is incongruence. Part of discipleship is learning to embrace our bodies as important aspects of our identity, learning to see them, that is our bodies, as gifts from God and part of how to bear his image 
in the world. So that begins to bring us to a place, if you're somebody who struggles with gender dysphoria, to some really tough questions. And for those questions, I want to point us to the Lord Jesus himself. See, I believe that Jesus is our model for how to live with hope, both in terms of how he lived as a man here on earth, but also through the cross and the resurrection. But he's also our model to the church about how to be compassionate, how to respond with compassion to those who might struggle in this area. You see, Christ's incarnation affirms God's good creation in both our physicality and our biological sex. Think about it. Jesus was born. God came in human flesh as a baby boy. When Jesus came, God in the flesh, God did not improve upon the creation. He actually affirmed it in the incarnation. In all the centuries that had passed since God had made uh, Adam and Eve, when Christ came, he didn't say, you know what, that man and woman thing was good, but I'm going to create this, the incarnation is going to be this new thing. Jesus' incarnation affirms the dignity of our biology. It's the ultimate fulfillment. That's why Paul calls, calls him the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul points us to something. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, this particular argument of Paul doesn't apply to you. He's talking about the blood-bought nature of our personhood, that, that Christ owns you because he purchased you. But the reality is Christ actually purchased you back from death. God already made you as you are. And one of the things that's been lost really since the Industrial Revolution is this idea of the creator-owner dynamic of who God is. John Cross in his book, The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus, uh, vividly points this out. He says, if you go into a primitive culture, even today, into a village somewhere, and you ask vill the villagers, whose canoe is that? Whose paddle is that? Whose bowl is that? The quizzical response you'll get is, the person who made it. Unless there's been some bartering, it's understood that the person who owns it is the person who created it, and vice versa. That was always understood in terms of culture, and then the Industrial Revolution happened, where we mass produce things. The reality is we all fall subject to the creator-owner dynamic when God is, where God is concerned. He made us. Therefore, let me say it gently and lovingly, he dictates who we are in terms of male or female. Not only that, that if you're a Christian, you are doubly his because he bought you back from death. So perhaps you say this morning, well, how can I live a lie in my own skin and be my authentic self? And my gentle answer to you would be, in giving you a biological sex, God has revealed your gender. But in giving you Jesus, he has modeled how to be that son or daughter of the king. Because Jesus was not born androgynous, and yet he models a, a masculinity the perfect blend, if you will, of masculinity and femininity in one person. Jesus both confronts the leadership of his day boldly. He teaches provocatively. He backs down from no confrontation, but he answers perfectly in love. But he also esteems women in a culture that marginalized, a patriarchal culture that marginalized and did not esteem women. He weeps in public. He prays on his knees. He's dependent on his father. And ultimately, he goes all the way to the cross and he dies for his enemies. 
Paul tells us in Romans. Jesus is our model for how to live with hope. He's a model of what it means to be a son or daughter of the king. I want to make a final application. We'll move toward our conclusion. You might find yourself, as I did at the initial part of kind of wrestling with this topic, saying, I can't relate to those who struggle with this particular issue. But I think what we can relate to, and again, we spoke about this earlier, is a sense of self and identity is something we all struggle with, even as later adults, right? There's, all, there's something that all of us wrestle with. Maybe it's a, something that's happened because of your aging. Maybe it's a disability or a physical malady that you get frustrated with and wrestle with and question God about. Maybe it's a struggle with obesity or, or body image issues or whatever it is. We all can, can recognize this struggle of our physicality and, and being dissatisfied or discontented with how God has made us. Personal example. Uh, when I was a baby, I was born premature at about five pounds and I had a major birth defect in my digestive tract. So I went right from the, the delivery into, into surgery, and, and major surgery a couple of times. And so I have these really significant uh, scars on my abdomen. If I had born today, been born today, I wouldn't have them, but it was the 1970s. It was kind of like, you know, hack and slash and just make it good. Um, and so I grew up with these glaring scars. And when I would go to the beach or be at the pool as a boy, people would point and they would talk and sometimes laugh. And I was certainly self-conscious about how I, how I was made, about this birth defect and this surgery. My response as a young person was, I basically didn't wear a shirt all summer. And so I'd just get over it. Eventually it became white noise. But my point is, we all know what it is to struggle with something about how we're made. And so we might, we might not have empathy on this topic, we certainly can have sympathy. Jesus is our model. I want to read you from Romans chapter 6. This is the New Living Translation. I'm not going to read the whole passage for the sake of time. But Paul is talking about the cross. I'll read the first and last verse here. He says, For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father. Now we also may live new lives. Last verse in the passage. So you should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Hear me, if you struggle with gender dysphoria, that struggle is not sinful. It's a byproduct of a broken world and of sin. But the Bible calls you to live within the context of your biological sex. And what I'm saying this morning, that brings us to our final point, is that the Christian community, the family of God, is the place where you ought to be able to walk out that struggle with people who love you because we love Jesus first. So one giant verse that reveals Jesus' complex masculinity, if you will. One huge verse in the New Testament that's only two words. Jesus wept. We know from our study of John's gospel not that long ago that Jesus weeping in John chapter 11 over his friend Lazarus' death it is multi-layered. Jesus is certainly weeping over his sorrow over his friend, but we believe he's also weeping because of the effects of sin and that this was not how it was supposed to be and that death was not supposed to be the end. And He's, he's weeping for the fact that there's this guttural sense of, of angst over that, but he's likely also weeping because he knows the cost that he himself will bear. Ultimately, Jesus weeps because Jesus cared. And because Jesus cared, Jesus died for you and me. And he is the model. This is the pattern for the church. 
that when someone shares their struggle with dysphoria, that we would weep with them, that we would care for them, that we would die to ourselves for them, walking with them in their struggle. Final quote, and then we're going to take communion. I'm going to ask the band to come out and prepare us. Preston Sprinkle says this, people and concepts, both are important, both are necessary. Jesus is building an upside down kingdom where outcasts have their feet washed, the marginalized are welcomed, the dehumanized people feel humanized once again, where the truth is upheld, celebrated, and proclaimed, and where those who fall short of that truth, that's you and me, brothers and sisters, are loved. Amen? I ask you to take your little cups this morning. We're rooting everything we've talked about in in what Jesus has done for us at the cross, where he gave his life for us. If you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, if you would not call yourself a Christian, this symbolic act is not for you. But we would ask that you would watch, listen, uh, observe, ask questions that we might walk with you even perhaps even into beginning a relationship with Jesus yourselves. But for those of us who know and love Jesus, this is where we recenter and remember exactly why Jesus did what he did for us. We don't have it all figured out either, but he, he died for us to undo not only the effects of sin, but to deal with my sin. That we might live a new life and live for eternity. So I'm gonna give thanks to the bread and we'll take it together. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you We thank you that you died for us, that you went to the cross of Calvary to deal with our sin and to deal with the effects of sin in our world that caused this confusion, that caused this struggle that we face as human beings. And Lord God, we thank you that you came in human flesh, that you affirmed the creational intent of our biology even. Would you help us as we take this bread to explicitly remember your body broken For each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the bread together. Give thanks for the cup. Lord God, from the earliest moments in the Old Testament, it was clear that blood being shed was the way through which sin was forgiven. And Jesus, you came and fulfilled all of the Old Testament pictures one sacrifice for all time, for all who would believe in you, Hebrews says. And so Lord, as those who have chosen to surrender our lives to you, to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, we're only doing what you already did in going to the cross. And Jesus, we thank you and we worship you. We do this in obedience to you. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's take the cup. Before I give thanks for the offering, We take an offering after we take the body and the blood of Jesus because it puts our worship of Christ and our understanding of sacrifice in terms that are tangible, something that's part of our real everyday lives. While what we do with the bread and the cup is symbolic, our giving is tangible. So if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, the good news is this isn't for you either. Truly, we don't want your money. We want you to know Jesus. Let me give thanks for the offering. Lord God, we thank you for the great sacrifice that we've just remembered in the cross, that you paid it all, 
And Lord, it's a, it's a privilege. It helps us, Lord, to remember that all that we have been given is already yours and that we would give back to you some small portion. Lord God, what a privilege to be able to participate in what you're doing here at Groton Bible Chapel and, and by consequence of that around the world in our community. Lord, we're thankful. Would you help us to spend the money that, uh, that is given wisely with thoughtful stewardship, oh God. So we thank you for this offering this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together and let's end our time in worship.